don't think we met before, but I'm the referee on this field. If you're working as an accountant and you lose your job, nobody really notices. Leinster could offer me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. <laughs> Robbie Robbie weekly. Little reverse pass. Hello and welcome to the 42 Rugby Weekly. Gavin Casey here in studio in Cork. Murray Kinsella is off this week, apparently to transition into becoming a rugby league journalist. But we hope to see him back again. I'm joined on the line by Bernard Jackman. How are you, Bernard? Very good, thanks, Gavin. Were you watching the Super Rugby over the weekend, Bert? Absolutely, yeah. I got up, um, well, I, I wouldn't say Saturday morning was early, but... Uh, I got up, got up to watch that, and then um, you know I doubled, doubled down and got up early. Uh, I think it was half four, um, Sunday morning to to watch the the Blues Hurricanes, and uh, yeah, it was just brilliant. I think to see particularly the Auckland game, you know, and a, and um, a record crowd um, in Eden Park, and the Blues to 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 play well and perform, and just see I suppose see live sport back with people in the stadium. Um, you know, it definitely gave me hope, and uh, you know, I, I really enjoyed it. I thought the quality was really good, considering considering the players have, have come back from a break and and they hit the ground running um, pretty quick, and definitely interesting to watch. Obviously, you know, some some great great try scored, but also I suppose from a refereeing point of view, it was fascinating to see um, the amount of penalties that were given away, and and again how teams are going to adapt to that over over the next three or four weeks, or will referees adapt and become more lenient and you know, we lose the opportunity to, I suppose, clean up the game a little bit. So, uh, yeah, plenty to plenty to ponder on. Yeah, we're going to uh, stick our teeth into it as well. And we'll look ahead to the province's return to training uh, next week, later on in the episode. But um, to begin with, I suppose, like, I think there was a kind of a feeling that it was a, a little bit special, wasn't there? Just the fact that there were fans there as well. You saw them coming onto the pitch afterwards, um, a few of them, and, and getting autographs and that sort of thing. And as you say, the quality of the rugby was actually really high. There was just a, I think there was a natural high to be found in in watching both games, Birch, and and I'd imagine for people in New Zealand as well, um, it, it kind of felt like a, a grand reopening on on the sporting front. And we're kind of sitting here salivating a little bit, like wondering when we're going to be in the the same position where we can get people into stadiums and so on. But for something that was essentially like. If it like it could be considered nearly pre-season, even though it is very much in competition, but just for the fact that uh, people teams haven't had competitive action, um, it, it was incredibly, uh, as you say, high quality and uh, and just so enjoyable. I think for 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 people around the world who were tuning in, wasn't it? I, I heard some of the um, the viewership figures were you know were through the roof, and it's not surprising. I think you know New Zealand derbies always. Um, you know, offer a, a a really competitive game, but just we've all been starved from you know from live rugby for so long, um, and you know I think there was a huge huge interest in it, um, and obviously it's like you know you've got you know some absolutely world class players, and even the whole Dan Carter signing for the Auckland Blues probably fed into that, um, I suppose hype and expectation. Obviously he was only a water boy at the weekend, but. It just, uh, yeah, it definitely seems to have captured, um, you know, the interest. And, you know, it's going to be a few weeks before anyone else is, is playing. So they have a real opportunity, I suppose, to, you know, to sell to sell how the quality of, of New Zealand rugby. And, um, you know, we're going to have lots of derbies over the next couple of weeks. And, yeah, it's just going to be fascinating to see, you know, which which team can can dominate that that competition this year. 
Absolutely, yeah. Let's start with the the Blues then. And uh, there was a, a kind of a a marvellous picture going around of uh, Dan Carter in his Waterboy duties next to Tanu Manga, his old um, his old partner in, in midfield and so on. But um, we spoke about it on the podcast over the last couple of weeks, so the Blues are like a, a very exciting project in a way, and they probably haven't quite uh, lived up to expectations, even though they've assembled some really strong squads over the past 15, 20 years, really, in Super Rugby. Did you get the impression, Brush, that this Blues team, with the addition of Bowden Barrett, obviously, who's like not only an extra um, string to, to their bow, but like so much more, that they can actually uh, become the real deal and sort of fulfill the, the potential that they have shown in the past? It's always been the, the richest breeding ground of talent, um, but there's been you know massive issues in terms of I suppose being able to bring the right talent through the the Auckland player development pathway into into Auckland for minor ten and then the Blues and a lot of the other franchises have been really I suppose smart and um, and good at getting you know some probably underperforming talent out of that region and down to the Chiefs in particular um, it's obviously the you know the closest one geographically but also they've gone down to the South Island to um, the Crusaders and, and the Blues at certain times and you know, turned turned out to become all black. So that was very frustrating for Auckland and, and um you know they've had a lot of changes of coaches. Um but I think Leon McDonald has gone in there now and, and obviously he's come through the, the Crusader system. You've guys, you know, um you've really strong Auckland um I suppose uh Auckland people at Auckland DNA and them involved in the management and, and the coaching. Um and even like Tanamanga, you know, he, he was the head coach there but He's now um, he's now part of the the assistant coaches as a as a defence coach, but has got huge respect from you know from the players. And I think they're on a they're on an upward curve. Uh, There's lots to like around the performance of the weekend, um, and yeah, I, I think that they in terms of their the roster and their talent uh, could be the could could end up being the best team in New Zealand this year, which would be phenomenal given you know what the, what the Chiefs, the Highlanders, and and the Crusaders have done over the last, you know, uh, six, seven years in terms of being able to win win a Super Rugby. But I think the Blues could come very quickly now and, and pass them out. And I thought they looked in great shape uh, coming out of the lockdown. Yeah, we, we spoke about it as well last week, obviously, that, like, Super Rugby is kind of in transition in itself. And, look, in, in a year's time or whatever, uh, there may not be a, a South African arm to the competition it might just be New Zealand and, and Australia it's looking increasingly likely that that would be the case but if that remains the case then obviously local derbies are going to play a massive role in the kind of marketability of the tournament and with that in mind then if you have a strong blues and you can get a, a kind of a, a fan base in Auckland as we said like there, there was a record attendance at the game over the weekend and you can create a, a, a kind of a marketable rivalry between the Blues and the Crusaders. It actually may be the, the fixture that could kick the competition on a little bit over the next couple of years, do you think? Like, it sort of seems like it may have the potential to be the equivalent of like a state of origin in, in rugby league where you just have, you know, red and blue kind of two historic rivals, but the, the rivalry has, has been diluted in recent years. But if you have them both gunning for silverware on a yearly basis it could be a kind of a marquee fixture on an annual basis you know without a doubt and i think a strong auckland is is really good for new zealand rugby um i think it's really good for super rugby um and, and 
Uh, I, I think that would be fascinating. I mean, you know, there's no doubt that they should be the 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 most powerful team on a consistent basis of the North Island. Crusaders have done so much right over the last 15, 20 years. Um, you know, they've been the dominant Southern Southern Ireland uh, side, and you know, I, I I just think a rivalry to to develop between them it hasn't been. Look, they've always been rivals, but there's only really been one winner, and that's been the Crusaders. But if the Blues you know, were to become, um, I suppose, contenders, legitimate contenders and rivals to Crusaders, um, you know, I, I think it could drive New Zealand rugby onto the All Blacks, even onto a, another level, because they have been underpinned realistically with the Crusaders kind of uh, culture and, and I suppose, leadership group. There's been a strong, I suppose, uh, influence from the Crusaders, whether it's through coaching or whether it's through um you know the, the spine of the team on the all backs over the last 10 15 years whereas you know if the blues could become this this team that were actually i suppose achieving its potential with strong leadership um you know with its own way of doing things you know i think that would actually pass up to the to the all back jersey and um you know it could be could be fascinating to watch the provincial rivalry but also um in the influence it could have in terms of the all blacks mm. it was obviously very enjoyable to watch them <clears throat> kind of strut their stuff a little bit over the weekend against the hurricanes i think a highlight for a lot of people on on twitter being when uh, the canes cross for a try on the sort of far side of the pitch uh based on like where the cameras are um Bowden Barrett got like roughhoused a little bit by his former teammates, a few pats on the head, and and some kind of um, uh, playful enough kind of uh, jibes in that regard. He seemed to to take it on the chin as well. But what what actually impressed you about their performance from a sort of a structural standpoint or even tactical standpoint um, under McDonald Bernard? Like, was it kind of what you were hoping to see from them, or did it even possibly exceed your expectations? No, I think it was. Um was probably even better i thought it was pretty complete i think um you know they were pragmatic the blues have always you know always wanted to play and um they've you know they've always had probably the most talented uh players but just that sense of i suppose teamwork and and desire and being able to to i suppose withhold um your your line when when the opposition attack and i think the hurricanes found it quite difficult to to break them down so i think defensively they've they've improved a lot um i thought our kicking game was was really well executed i thought um you know i, I thought K- uh, caleb clark was 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 absolutely phenomenal i mean uh i i saw him i went to auckland four years ago um uh four years ago to, to recruit players and uh, i went on a wednesday afternoon i went to watch um an inter-school sevens um sevens competition and he was the the standout player amongst a lot of talent he was playing for a school called uh, uh mount albert grammar and um i spoke to his coach afterwards and you know there was there was definitely an interest on our part to to maybe try and get him into france uh, and go into a into the grenoble academy but um i suppose luckily for him he you know he was able to see the future in new zealand and you know he's obviously been part of new zealand sevens um program for the last couple of years and but to see him do that, you know, in front of 44,000 or 5,000 people against a team like the Hurricanes, um, you know, I've no doubt he's going to become an all-black. He's obviously our only Clark son, um, so it's it's in the blood. But, uh, you know, I think, again, it's great. His, our only Clark, his father, would have been part of, of winning Super Rugby uh, titles with, with the Blues. And now, 
you know, 15, 20 years later, or 20 years later, his uh, his son is is helping, I suppose, turn turn the franchise around. And um, yeah, I, I just, look, he obviously stood out in terms of an individual, um, but I just thought they had a real pragmatic um, understanding of, of how they wanted to play the game. And the most important thing for the Blues is when they were put under pressure, they didn't wilt. Um, you know, they actually kind of, I thought they grew stronger together. So, and that's what the Crusaders have had. That's what the Chiefs have had. That's what the Highlanders have had. And the Blues haven't had that. So if they add that on a consistent basis, um, there's no doubt they have the talent to, to do something special. Yeah, for sure. What did you make of Barrett's performance in particular then? Yeah, I think he was okay. I mean, uh, he's obviously a bit rusty. Um, but, you know, the key is that, you know, he will hit, he will find his straps. He will, he will hit form. And, um, you know, the ideal scenario is when he does for the Blues... Everybody else is very comfortable. He was never going to go there and and carry the team on his own. I mean, it, it's definitely going to have to be a um, a collective effort. So I I thought he was great. He was fine, but you know it won't be there won't be many clips from that that'll be on his uh, highlights video because um, he's already compiled compiled uh, enough footage for that. But I think he'll find his feet. Um, and uh, you know the more he gets to play with those with that backline, the more influence he'll have. Looking at the uh, Highlanders-Chiefs game then, uh, your old friend Warren Gatlin took a bit of a sting at the end of that one, although I'm sure in a in a kind of a, a private way it would have been a proud moment for him as well. Um, what did you make of both teams' performances, like I suppose within the context of uh, this mini competition between all, all four uh, New Zealand outfits? Like, Where do you think the, the Highlanders and the Chiefs are in relation to the Blues and, and, and the Chiefs, albeit we haven't seen the Chiefs in action quite yet? Yeah, look, I think... Um... Obviously, the Chiefs lost the game, um, but uh, I would say they're probably closer to to being, you know, challengers to the Crusaders and the Blues than maybe the Highlanders are. I think the Highlanders are are uh, you know a good side and, and they deserve massive credit for for finding a way to win the game when it looked you know uh, all but over. But I think this game this game was was probably marred a little bit by the refereeing in terms of. Um, you know the referee. First, I think he did a great job. He stuck to, um, I suppose the the breakdown and pressure or the breakdown interpretations that World Rugby want to see refereed. But I, I thought both teams struggled with it a little bit, and the game lacked that flow um, that maybe we expected from from you know previous Super Rugby games. And I think that once the Chiefs you know readjust, uh, particularly around their ball carrier and their you know their their side entry and support to the to the ball carrier. Which I think they'll improve massively in, in a week. I think they're one of the smartest teams um, in the competition, and uh, they have a lot of talent as well. So I think they will improve quite quickly, and uh, I think that you know over the course of the next two months, um, they probably have a little bit more growth in them um, than than the Highlanders, who are a really good side. But you know they were at home, and probably a little bit more pressure on them to win. And you know even at the end, I thought the Highlanders were quite lucky; didn't give away a penalty. In that last yeah. minute, when uh, like you know we, you know I have this coaching group and we probably went back and forth all week on that. So um, about whether whether with with 65 seconds left, um, you know with the way the ref the game had been refereed, where having the ball, the attacking team were actually it was a liability in the breakdown. Um, whether it was a good tactic by by uh, Aaron Smith to wind the clock down for that long, you know, and uh, I think our consensus was, you know with the way the game was being refereed in that game and, and how we, we've been told it's going to be refereed to play that kind of 
you know, zigzag left to right pattern where you're just winding down the clock, um, but it was in a kickable range, probably in hindsight wasn't the right thing to do. The outcome was great. They didn't give away a penalty, but, um, you know, certainly looking back on it, we felt that there was two or three breakdowns where, you know, if, if, if the Chiefs had been given a penalty, um, it would have been very consistent with what happened beforehand. So, uh, yeah, there's lots, lots of, lots of learnings from it. I think all the coaches, you know, this week, you know, at, at training, they had some real live examples now to, to show players around, you know, how the referees are going to referee the breakdown. For sure, yeah. Like what, it, as you say, the consensus in your group would have been that to have possession in that um, period of time for as long as they did. Uh, and to not relinquish it may have been actually a disadvantage. As you say, they got away with it to an extent, and, and it worked. Was there anybody playing devil's advocate and saying that they should have actually done what they did do? Like, uh, anybody defending their, uh, yeah, well, their we, approach no, to we it? Did. We actually reached out to to Major, the coach, and right. um, asked him, because that was the fascinating one, was, you know, how how did they review that on Monday? And, um, you know, and the great thing is to try and review it you're reviewing it from a positive because regardless of what, whether it was the right thing to do or not, they've actually haven't given away the penalty and they've won the game. But, um, you know, what Major said was, they said, look, we back you to make that decision. Um, we we back the decision, and, that, and I think that's really important, the coaches back it, but uh, is that we understand we have to be, you know, whiter than white in terms of our movement on the ground as a ball carrier plus our, our, our entry to the breakdown. Plus, you know, not going off her feet. So, look, that's what he, that's what he came back with. I'd be interested to see if they do it. I, I think, I think ninety percent of 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 us felt, you know, it hadn't been more than six phases in the game. Um, you know, you you, and also it wasn't thirty seconds to wind down the clock. It was, it was literally sixty five seconds. So, I, I'd like to see it happen again this weekend and see <laughs> if they kick long and and trust trust their defense to defend high up the field. Given that, you know, as I said. It's, it was more of a liability to have the ball than than not. But look at it's it's just one of those things that you you know from Aaron Major's point of view they can problems they can chat about it to the playing group um, in a really positive manner because you know they've got the right outcome and if they want to continue with that as being their policy well then great you know they're already one nil um, but if they want to change it you know they're not changing it because of of losing the game over it. Yeah, for sure. You mentioned the the refereeing and probably the Highlanders Chiefs game was a little bit more stop start than the Blues Hurricanes game, but at the same time we probably expected it to an extent just the fact that there were going to be a, a couple of changes and it was going to be the players first experience of of trying to adapt towards those changes. What what did you make of the the refereeing um individually like or specifically and uh and also, like how the players uh, managed, or, well, attempted to cope with those uh, rule changes. Look, I thought the refereeing was was excellent because that's that's what we've been told World Rugby want. And, and I mean, you know, we know Joe Schmidt and and uh, has been has been working with World Rugby. Um, uh, there's a guy Richie Gray uh, who's like probably the the most experienced or, or specialist breakdown coach in the world he's he's on that panel of you know um they've worked really hard with referees and you know effectively what they said was look at the laws are actually fine it's just the 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 actual implementation of them by the by the referees so i think both referees were very consistent and refereed what was what we were told was going to be the case um i think maybe the players were a little bit shocked at how how strict they were and how much they picked up um and that's that's no harm you know uh, and maybe 
led to the games not being as free flowing as we want, and a lot of penalties, a lot of a lot of turnovers, and everyone thinks turnovers are good. And you know that's um, you know Damian McKenzie in space, for example. I mean, we want that as much as possible, but I think we also have to understand that if if the turnovers are happening so frequently, um, you end up with Damian McKenzie, you know, uh, not really with any time um, to actually do anything. So, like a lot of Damian McKenzie's great breaks and 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 magic moments, just to use him as an example. Obviously, the, the both teams are full of players like that can do things um, with X factor, but they come from a, a situation where you know the the attacking team are hard on attack, so they're attacking in their attacking shape. And you know when they lose the ball, then they're they're slightly vulnerable. Um, and you know they can get the ball to him to to attack to have a mismatch. Whereas or from a poor kick down the middle, for example. But what I found in the game at the weekend was because neither team could hold on to the ball for long enough. Uh, it was a completely different scenario that those turnovers were were happening in, and there was actually no real opportunity to do anything with them. Uh, and then that led to getting turned over again quite quickly. So, you know, what I think will happen this week is the players will will get to the support, or the, ball, the support players will get to the ball carrier a lot quicker because, you know, that's the key. The ball carrier, you know, he won't over over move on the ground because they've been picking up on that. And there'll be a lot more detail on their, on their entry to the rook so they won't come in the side. So suddenly you will have more phase play. Um, and again, you know, I think we'd end up with somewhere ha- happy medium where, you know, it won't be as easy to have had to keep the ball as it was, um, but it won't be as hard to keep the ball as it was last weekend. Yeah, I was going to ask you that, like, how quickly do you think that the players and coaches indeed will will be able to transition towards, um, I suppose, just being able to to uh, to adhere to those um, the impl- implementation of the rules, like in that they're being implemented more more stringently. Like, do you think it, it's it'll be a smooth enough transition over the course of even this weekend, where it won't necessarily be from the spectators' point of view as stop started as, as it was last weekend, or do you think it might take a, a few weeks before it's kind of ironed out from the players' point of view? I think there'll be a vast improvement this weekend, um, and I would expect by round four. Um, players being really comfortable with with what they can and can't do. Um, and I think the advantage for the advantage going into this weekend is obviously for the Chiefs, Blues, and Hurricanes. They've already played. You know, the Crusaders had a had an internal game. I think at the weekend. But and while they will definitely have have learned from from the footage of the of the two games that happened, um, I do think the players who played in in games of that intensity. Um, and experience that firsthand, you know, should be a little bit ahead of the curve. So there's probably an advantage for the Hurricanes, obviously holding or hosting the the Crusaders at the weekend. But um, I do expect a big improvement. I, 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 that's the thing for me. I'm fascinated to see one how the referees, you know, what feedback they had from their their bosses, and you know, were they overzealous? Were they were they not hard enough? Or were they, you know, were they just on the money? And again, do they have the confidence to go and do that again because look, you can be sure that the the Chiefs, Blues, and Hurricanes um, and Highlanders. I mean, their coaching staff will have been sending reports to to the referees and and, and questioning certain decisions, etc. So it's probably, as I said, it takes about four rounds usually for it to um, to level out. But uh, I would say that uh, I would I would expect a vast improvement uh, this week without being perfect. Murray had a good piece there during the week just before he took a break on why numbers on jerseys matter less than ever and the kind of fluidity of of um 
of play now and, and how positions aren't necessarily as restrictive as they would have been in the past. Um, with that in mind then, Warren Gatland, I'm wondering how you got on, or how, sorry, how he got on in your eyes uh, for the Chiefs in the sense that like that type of thing and even that kind of brand of rugby that they're very much uh, playing in New Zealand at the moment would be slightly at odds with what we would have seen him do with Wales to great success over the past decade or so. So like, do you think that there were similarities in what the Chiefs were doing to what you would have seen Gatland try to do with Wales? Or do you think he's actually you know, completely changing really what, what he's trying to do? Or, or is it somewhere in the middle perhaps? Yeah, I think it'll be in the middle. I think again, it's hard to really judge the Chiefs because because of the amount of, of turnovers and, and, and penalties. Um I do think they will, you know, they will be a little bit more conservative. But, you know, with guys like Mackenzie Stevenson, um, Antelena Brown, and now that Aaron Cruden, Aaron Cruden was only on the bench last weekend. I mean, he's he's fit to start now, and and you know he'll pull the string. So I I don't think they'll they'll play a Northern Hemisphere type game. Um, they'll just probably have a better focus on on the importance of of set piece, and I think you know. They'll be very frustrated with how they defended them all against the Highlanders. That was probably their their Achilles heel, and, and I know that they'll want to use them all as a as a weapon. So, um, yeah, I'd say it's too early. I, I do think they, you know, they'll definitely have bring the I suppose the lessons and the insights Warren has around kind of game management and territory, etc., uh, and taking your points when when they're on on offer. But uh, from the Northern Hemisphere, but I also think that they won't. They won't go too far away from, um, you know what's what's probably part of their their heritage, which is playing, you know, playing really exciting, expansive ball, in your, uh, or playing on your feet rugby. Yeah, for sure. Over in Australia, then uh, Michael Checa has engaged in a war of words with uh, a selector, Michael O'Connor. Um, if people haven't been uh, following it, because it might only really be making headlines over uh, in Australia, like. Um, O'Connor kind of mentioned that under Cheka, particularly during the World Cup, I think that like meetings could be awkward and so on. It was basically just calling into question, uh, I suppose, Cheka's reign or at least the the latter stages of it. And Cheka is kind of fired back saying that O'Connor is is unqualified to be making such remarks. Uh, have you been following that for starters, Bernard? Before I ask you about it, but and um, yeah, no, I've been following it. I, I think it's um, it's disappointing, really. Uh, I think it's you know. The World Cup was obviously a, a disappointment for for Michael and, and all his, his his coaching staff and his playing group. They didn't achieve what they set out to achieve, and obviously, you know, Michael's no longer there. And I think he's 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 kept his counsel. I mean, we have to remember, uh, you know, it was a very difficult twelve months uh, to be head coach of Australia going into into that World Cup with with obviously the. You know Israel Falau issue, but also I mean Australian rugby as as we've seen now is in a is in a very poor place uh, financially and also in terms of governance. So uh, like maybe it's only really breaking post World Cup of of how difficult it is financially, but you know you can be sure that Michael would have been well aware of that. And um, and also you know we have to remember as well that before the World Cup, you know they brought in a, a three man panel who were basically selectors and uh, which is. O'Connor, Michael O'Connor was one of those selectors. Scott Johnson, you know, who's the uh, head of performance, I think his role, his title is, um, is the other selector, and Michael was a third. So effectively, I mean, you know, they brought back in a, a select a selector process that, 
you know, we kind of laughed at for the last 15 years uh, when we talk about the amateur days and how, you know, Warren Gatlin, when he was head coach, had to, and Eddie O'Sullivan sometimes had to, by all accounts, go and, and um, sit down in front of a selection panel uh, or at least um, explain their tactics, etc., for, for the weekend uh, or, or review the game to people who aren't probably, you know, qualified to do it. So, um, uh, you know, Michael O'Connor... Like he obviously was a great player, um, and you know he was a dual a dual representative of Australia rugby league and rugby union, but it does sound for me crazy that Michael Checker had to go and um, I suppose select a team with and because it's a it's a selection panel of three effectively he might lose his his uh, his his argument over certain positions which obviously I don't think makes sense so. Um, you know, and even uh, today, uh, Mick Byrne, Mick the Kick, who who was part of the All Blacks um, coaching staff for a long time and was part of the Wallabies, you know, he, he, he sticks up for Cheka and, and he said, look, because part of the criticism that's been labelled at him is that training standards were, were really poor, people didn't understand the game plan, there was, you know, uh, the players were afraid of Cheka um, and... You know, they basically couldn't argue or couldn't vent their frustration with the game plan. I mean, Michael Cheka, I know the public perception of Michael Cheka is, you know, this ball of fire and, and uh, you know, quite emotional and, and uh, I suppose, uh, passive aggressive or aggressive type character. You know, I, I can guarantee you um, 99% of the time, He's someone who empowers uh, his players and um, is absolutely craves that feedback and and gives player ownership. So it doesn't sit well with me what what he's been accused of because um, I know for a fact that a huge part of his success and and his his way of doing things is to is to involve the players, involve the coaching staff, and even you know I think Mick Byrne you know he he backs that up. He said you know he would have had robust um i suppose discussions with michael around tactics around selection um etc and michael always you know took on board his opinion and 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 sometimes he agreed sometimes he didn't disagree and but once that decision was made they all you know they all walked out of the room and they 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 stayed united and you know michael had to sometimes go you know he'd, he'd speak to his assistant coaches on a on a monday and they would speak about selection They'd all give their opinion. They'd agree on what they felt was the right team, but then they didn't know until Michael came back from the selection meeting, um, you know what they were going to have. So like that's, you know, you know that's not happening in any other any other country or, or elite team as far as I can see in rugby. Um, and it probably, you know, in fairness to Michael, when he when he left the job, he didn't he didn't criticize that openly. You know, um, he had a bit of a uh, a bit of a, a chat about how hard it was to deal with the CEO, but. He didn't really get into the nitty bit, nitty gritty of it, and I just think it's disappointing now, whatever length of time it is, post World Cup, it's eight nine months, uh, for this to be kind of being aired again in public, and some of the players are being criticised as well. I mean, you know, he he, he kind of has a, Michael Connor has a bit of a go at the skill set of some of the props, um, which I think is is on call for particularly Kepu, who's you know been a a great servant to Australian rugby, and yeah, I just think it. I, I actually hundred percent with. With with Cheka and and Mick Byrne and the coaches on this, I think they are you made a made a wrong call to implement implement this policy to try and control control the coaches and uh, yeah I think it was a poor decision and now 
you know now it's it's been aired publicly again at a time when you know you'd like to see Australian rugby, you know, use this this lockdown as an opportunity maybe to to regain some fans by being able to play a lot more local derbies like the Kiwis are. Like, have the ARU ever really outlined what the point of their uh, selectors policy is in in the fact that they have them? Like uh, as you say, it's not really a thing at certainly not at international level anywhere else uh, to my mind it might be something you would have associated with AOL clubs or or even GA clubs like um at a grassroots level over the years but like for a, a head coach of a national team to basically have to go and like plead his case to be able to select his team it, it like that's beyond belief really isn't it in this day and age and to be honest i actually had forgotten about it i remember I remember he was under pressure. Um, I think it was uh, after 2018, they had a difficult year. And uh, I, I do remember reading about, you know, this being brought in. I thought it was bananas. And sometimes, sometimes you know, th- there could be a selection committee, but they always give the coach what he wants, you know. So uh, how I had read it was that it was kind of going to be a sounding board for for the, for the coaches. Um, but, yeah, by, by all accounts... It seems as if they actually weren't all on the same page and that sometimes Michael didn't get his say. And look, as you say, it may be in in, in AIL rugby or in, in GA uh, circles, but I would say that most coaches or managers I know w- would, would say that's one of the, um, the key issues about taking a job, that they have to have final say um, or sole say in some ways on, on what the team uh, selection is to be so uh, I think yeah it seems to be just uh, something that the ARU obviously thought was a good plan and in fairness to Michael I'm sure his good feeling would have been this is this is crazy but uh, he also uh, is someone who's absolutely passionate about Australia and he probably felt look at you know it's not ideal but I, I, I started this uh, journey whatever four or five years ago um you know, I believe we can turn around at the World Cup, and despite this, you know, I'm I'm going to stick on stick on track and stick with them to to try and achieve that. So I think that's probably, you know, knowing him, he's such a loyal person that he would have wanted to finish the job and probably thought, you know, even though it's obviously far from ideal, um, it was one of those things he could manage. But by all accounts, now when you when you hear you know these comments from Michael O'Connor, um, obviously it wasn't really a an aligned group uh, uh, in terms of this selection committee or even him on the selection committee uh, maybe we're not we're not sure what uh, Scott Johnson's relationship uh, or his thoughts on it are um, but it just seems to be a, another layer of bureaucracy that I don't see how anyone could benefit from yeah for sure uh, closer to home then players are probably undergoing COVID testing as we speak and training will resume or begin really for Munster and Leinster next week and a little bit later for Connacht and Ulster. I was wondering, uh, could I ask you from a coaching point of view, like when players are going back into training next week after such a long period out, albeit they'll have been working away on their own, what kind of a workload would be put on them? Like what can we expect from players to be doing uh, or what can we expect for players to be doing rather from next week onwards? Like do you, I presume you have to kind of ease them in, but at the same time, you know, in a sport like rugby where there's so much of it is physical and you've things like contact fitness that you need to work on for, for probably six weeks before games, you can't take it that easy on them either. No, and I think that there's probably, um, 
yeah, we have to remember they won't be doing any contact for a while. And um, I think the Irish players have kept themselves in in incredible um, condition. And the great thing was they were able to, I suppose, keep their running fitness up um, to a to a really high level. And I know a lot of them had their own GPS units, and there was you know internal internal competition or internal measurement around who was achieving what. So you weren't just you know running a set number of meters in a set time i mean you're probably competing with with the guys in your position or competing with with your forwards or the backs and i know that they definitely would have uh, are, are definitely bought into that and they're hitting some really good scores they've also been doing um their gym work but let's be honest i mean um you know even though they've all been given some kind of equipment uh there's no way they would have been able to hit the same numbers from a um from a weight training point of view uh because obviously one one part of it is you know maybe lack of weight uh, uh and two is obviously that that ability to have someone to spot you uh, to help you with your lifts to i suppose to to watch your technique from a safety point of view uh etc so i think they'll be a little bit behind in that so i think they'll come back really fit running wise um and i think what the coaches and the and the snc's and heads of performance will be looking to do is get a a gauge of where they're at in terms of their muscle mass in terms of their you know their strength and power and i'd imagine that that will be a focus you know over the next four or five weeks before they go back into um or whatever length of time it is before they're allowed back starting to get some some bone on bone contact and again there's probably another four or five weeks of that before you you want to play and do your live mauling live scrummaging and i suppose you know contact in the air for for your aerial work so um i i would imagine and speaking to to some people who are uh close to it is that's the that's the area that they're concerned about and then the ball work stuff um that'll come back pretty quickly some of them have you know been able to do their kicking um their passing etc and they'll just they'll just get them back into that i suppose um by social distancing and um some some sm- skill sessions and small groups without without physical uh contact um and that'll come back pretty quickly, I'd, uh, I'd imagine. Um, just speaking to some of my coaching pals, uh, so Toulouse are back. Uh, Toulouse are back a few weeks ago, and uh, so the skills coach, he's getting, um, he's working more hours. He's ever worked in his life because, <laughs> effectively, yeah, they're in the gym in small groups, and then they're rotating out to the pitch um, in small groups, and because there's no contact or no unit stuff or no team stuff it's all skill based so he's effectively doing the same session i think 10 times a day uh to get through to 50 50 players because i think they're working in groups of five um and again you know they come in out of the the environment without having contact with with other players they come in togged out so they don't go into the dressing room they leave they leave in a you know it's a one-way system in the car park etc so they're it's pretty it, it's it's very stringent um it's it's well well policed and you know they're really happy just to be back i suppose back getting back on track towards when they can train properly and uh and play again so there's no you know there's no complaints from from them about the i suppose the criteria it's just a case of it just makes the days longer for for some of the coaches um and as i said the big focus at the moment is is getting that gym strength power work up um and then they'll gradually increase the i get back into getting the the load and also to be honest the, the the challenge is and this is this is what's coming back from from soccer you know where they're where they're back it, it's the 
it's the I suppose the unanticipated stopping and turning and and late shifts of direction that are causing the injuries rather than you know straight out flat um, flat speed running because they've been able to do that in lockdown and that's the, that's what they want to be careful of and that's what they'll try and in, introduce as much as possible to get the body ready for that over the next four or five weeks. A very straightforward question to finish with then. Uh, after watching the rugby in New Zealand over the weekend and with the return to training in mind, how much are you looking forward to just watching the provinces back in action again? It just feels as though it's been so long. Yeah, it's going to be brilliant. And and, um, and again, I, I can only imagine what the the players and coaches were, were feeling, you know, Saturday morning um, and Sunday morning watching watching that action from, from Super Rugby. As I've said in the, uh, before in the podcast, they've been doing a huge amount of of reflection around what they did last season um and you know i think this is like a it's a brilliant opportunity to to i suppose to add on another layers um to to what they were doing or or maybe even a team who maybe weren't as successful as they as they wanted to be or weren't heading towards what they looked what thought was success um to basically rip it up and start again and uh yeah just seeing them play provincial or interprovincial derbies hopefully in in august um yeah, it can't come quick enough. <laughs> it certainly can't. Bernard, pleasure as always. Thanks, Thank William. you. Lovely. Talk to you soon. And thanks to everybody at home as well. We'll be back next week, same time, same place. Until then, mind yourself. I don't think we've met before, but I'm the referee on this field. If you're working as an accountant and you lose your job, nobody really notices. Leinster could have me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. <laughs> <laughs> Robbie Robbie weekly. Then the first pass. Oh!